0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. So if you're new here, we are partway through 1 Peter, so we'll be, be... Going through all the First Peter and then go into Second Peter, so we find ourselves this morning at in chapter four, and we're going to work our way through verses one through eleven. And before we dive into that, I just kind of want to maybe set set the stage a little bit for kind of the thoughts on on going through this, and really, it's for all of all of what Peter's been trying to tell us all along. So, I thought that it's calibration time, so it's not celebration time, so it may re- ruin that song forever. Not ruin it, now that every time you hear celebration time, um, it'll, uh, now you can think calibration time. So, but I just want to just spend a few minutes here and just go through what calibrating means. The definition of calibration is to standardize or to bring into conformity with a standard by determining the deviation so as to ascertain the proper correction factors needed to adjust precisely for a particular function. I'll read that one more time because there's a lot there. To standardize, to bring into conformity with a standard by determining the deviation so as to ascertain the proper correction factors needed to adjust precisely for a particular function. So, a lot of things that we have in our lives are calibrated, they decalibrated. It can be hydraulics, it can be compasses, it can be machines, equipment, electronics. There's lots of things that are calibrated. Often poor performance or poor output is the first sign that a machine requires calibration. A product that does not meet specifications or a machine that fails to operate as intended, are two of the most common indicators that calibration is needed. So if you go back to the previous slide there, so the process of calibration involves the standard. We have to discover the standard. So we have to know what that standard is. And then we have a difference. We see that if there's a difference, and so we determine the deviation from that standard. And then thirdly, there's correction and so adjustments are made to obtain the manufacturer specifications for whatever's being calibrated so sometimes we say well how often well that depends on how intricate the part is or how intricate the machine is whatever it may be Um, simple instruments might only be calibrated once in their life if that maybe they're just manufactured and they're never calibrated Um, complex instruments there's some things there's there's lasers and cameras that involve 3D scanning that you calibrate every time it's used. And so there's, there's multiple complexities. And whether something is simple or it's a complex calibration, the user needs to be in close relationship with the manufacturer. So if you're not in close relationship with the manufacturer, you're not gonna have a clue if something is working properly or the way it should be calibrated. We calibrate also uh, according to the manufacturer's recommended timeframe. Um, calibration may be made for the confidence of the user. Maybe if there's someone sets ship or sail on a ship to go around the world, they might want to calibrate and make sure their compass is calibrated because if they're off just a little bit, they're going to miss where they're headed. So it could just be for confidence of the user. Um, Calibration is done whenever there's alterations or modifications made. So you want to recalibrate if you've added to or do something. Um, If damage is suspected, there's always calibration. In all cases, by following the manufacturer's guidance, peak performance can be achieved. And so we take that and then we look at ourselves and we and we look at humans and humans are the most complex instruments ever created and we can see that physically just by unbeliever or you can talk to a doctor that's an unbeliever and you know i think it's across the board that people would a, most people would agree that the the human is just the most sophisticated created and then so we kind of get off of the equipment tools and the physical parts of it and we look at spiritually um spiritually we're fallen and redeemed which is pretty complicated it's it's unlike angels even angels it says the angels are in awe of the re- the redemption that is made available to mankind we look at the our spiritual beings and we are we're eternal beings either we're with Christ and we're heirs and joint heirs or we're without Christ which means eternal separation from him so with that complexity the simpleness that we just went through it shouldn't surprise us that We need calibrated daily, sometimes hourly. Oftentimes, my life is by the minute, so we need to know that. The deviation from the standard, which is God and what He wills for our life, is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit through the opening of our eyes to reveal our Creator. We can't. We can't see the standard. We can't fix ourselves. We have to go to the creator. So Peter reminds us of the standard. The Holy Spirit reveals the deviation which enables the creator to make corrections. So I want to pray here before we get started, we pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal the deviations in our lives this morning and we can truly live for our Father the way that we are created to live. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this moment of time, and we just ask that you would be glorified through all things. Um, As Levi said, help everything that is said and remembered this morning to be accurate and true. If anything is amiss, that it would be forgotten um, or brought to attention. Father, just help us that we would lay all distractions aside and that we um, can see the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts and that deviations are revealed and that um, through your coming to earth and your death, burial, and resurrection and your spirit within us, that corrections can be made and we can be restored. We love you and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So today's passage, we're going to divide it into two sections. We're going to go verses one through six. And that's going to be, we're going to look at, it should be temporary suffering, but that's okay. So we've got temporary suffering we're going to look at in verses one through six, and then in verses seven through eleven, we're going to go and get our focus on eternal hope. And the temporary suffering that Peter is going to talk about is the suffering that is incurred upon a believer when they are following him. So we're not talking about the suffering of a fallen world. We there's many ways that mankind suffers, whether you're an unbeliever or not, we might have sickness death there 's all kinds of things that is just a result of a fallen world, however, all suffering is allowed by God, created by God in order to and through the process that we would affix our eyes back onto him so the temporary suffering, like i said that 's what it 's getting at if your're children, the temporary suffering we 're talking about is not um, the suffering that it takes you to do your homework, like you think it's going to take forever or it's going to take forever to clean your room or these types of things. Everything that we have in this life is temporary. So when we look at it as believers, our suffering is temporary no matter how bad it is. And our hope is eternal. And the hope that we talk about is not It's not a hope so hope like, oh, maybe it's a no so hope. So the hope that we oftentimes use in our conversations is not the hope that is that is meant when we're talking about eternal hope. And for unbelievers, it's reversed. Um, This one and two is reversed as far as there's eternal suffering. And people that are unbelievers have temporary hope. They put their hope and their trust in things, things that are temporal. So we're going to dive in. Um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 1 and 2. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So first of all, we want to just look at the first part of this, of these two verses. And we have to first look and say, well, how did Christ suffer? And I'm not going to get into all the ways there's, we don't have near enough time this morning to do that, but I just want to hit some of the, some of the things. The world wanted him killed his entire life from even when he was a baby, Herod tried to kill him. I mean, that was, from birth to the cross, he was, people wanted him dead. They wanted him gone. And we look at his life and that his heart's desire was to do the Father's will through teaching, suffering, or serving, and suffering. And the fleshly part of the cross was not his ultimate suffering. A lot of times we think, oh, well, you know, the, we think of the physical part of the suffering. And as terrible as that must have been, which we can't even wrap our minds around the physical part, the greatest suffering was him willfully taking, taking the penalty for our sins and being separated from the Father. And we look at the suffering he endured, though, was—it was the theme of his whole of his whole mission. Like he he knew before the earth was created that by him that he would come and suffer for us. So we need to arm ourselves with the way of thinking of Christ, and that is not that not not in some of the ways we just talked about but it's it's in doing the will of God and what he has in store for us does this mean that when we suffer we no longer sin because it says for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin to answer this we first have to understand what suffering peter is referring to and like we just like i said a little bit ago it's not the suffering of my car's broke down or the ac's broke or we have i have cancer because the entire world suffers the same but peter's referring to the suffering for christ when we are a child of his our heart's desire changes from following fleshly passions to following his will we still sin but we do we but we don't continue in sin so when sin is brought to our attention we don't remain in that sin. Sins are repented of, forget, forgiven, and forgotten. And so when you look at it in an eternal aspect, our sin has ceased, it's gone, because he's looking at it eternally. When we wake up each day, I just want to ask this question, do we desire to do his will or fulfill our desires and passions, whatever they may be? So it goes on in verse three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. And I I want to read some of the definitions so we kind of know what Peter was actually saying here. Sensuality is the behavior completely lacking in moral restraint, usually with the implication of sexual licentiousness. Passions, is to strongly desire to have what belongs to someone else or to engage in an activity which is morally wrong, to covet, to lust, evil desires, lust, desire. Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And while we were, when we look at this, Peter was writing to, some theologians say he was writing to Jews, some say he was writing to Gentiles, I'm not going to get into that because that's above. above. I, I think the point is, is who he's who Peter is writing to, he's saying that the past, the 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 lives that believers have lived in the past should be no more. These types of things should not be anymore. Finding pleasure or escape and fleshly comfort to get away. From reality should no longer be a part of our life. We've done this enough in the past, and so we might we might think that well we don't do the things that are on this list. But I think we have to look at the desires of the heart of what why people were doing these things, and I think we find that um, our hearts will reveal that we do the same things we just do them in different ways for examples i just want to throw out um and i'll clarify this sports hobbies entertainment social media jobs busyness some people filled up their whole life with busyness some people are idle and they just don't want to do anything Anything that we do to escape reality and serve our fleshly desires is included in this list. And so I'm not saying that sports, hobbies, things, but if we do those things just to try to have our own little me time and to get away totally, then I just question it. I'm just saying question your hearts, question your motives, question. let's question what we do. Each person can only answer this for themselves. In verse 4 and 5, it goes on, With respect to this, they are surprised, meaning unbelievers, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So I want to, first let's look at what debauchery means. It means behavior which shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. And malign means to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or injure his or her reputation and or life. So Peter was talking to the believers in that time and saying, hey, don't continue to live the way you lived. And when you do that, when you don't live that way, then don't be surprised when, when people want to harm or injure your reputation or life because of the life that you are now living In verse 5, they, like I said previously, meaning the unbelievers, they will, and they will give an account to the Father when they die, which is confirmed where it says, but they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He will judge them for their actions, their motives, and their lives. So it's not up to us to straighten that out. It's God's people and God's creation, and He created all, and it's for Him to straighten doesn't mean we don't have loving input. Verse 6, where it says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. It's referring to those that have lost their lives for being a follower of Christ, the martyrs, the ones that have already died because of their following for Him. It says that um, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they live in the Spirit the way God does. Some of you might be experiencing or have experienced suffering for Christ. And sometimes this kind of suffering is inevitable and sometimes our suffering for Christ is self-inflicted. And I'll explain that a little bit. It all depends on our hearts and our attitudes, the way in which we respond to unbelievers around us. Do we truly honor everyone as Peter called us to back in chapter 2? And when we go back and think about what that means um, of just truly honoring everyone, whether they're believer or unbeliever, it's we are seeing them as a person that is created by God. And so we need to honor them by having love and compassion the way he did. So if there's remarks made, if there's ways that... Um, we are made fun of, or particularly in this country, most of the time we have these interactions. It's more mockery, made fun of. Some countries, they're they're put to death. So um, I, I want to focus on kind of what our what our lives in our current stage of time, what we deal with, and most of that would be things being said, things you know, mostly made fun of that type of thing in this culture, this time that we live in this country. Too often we don't care enough and love enough to build a relationship that opens transparent conversations with others. So when we have that love and compassion that only Christ can give us, we can have those conversations, even if people are saying things against us. If we truly care, most people truly know when you care or not. Um... When we don't have that attitude, then it results in short answers and enables us to to be seen as a goody two-shoes, possibly, or different things that people say. So, how do we respond when others invite us into their sin? And I'm going to share a little quick story with you. And I was trying to debate on how to share this because it involves me, but you'll see that I'm not the center of it. So I kind of didn't want to share a story that I'm involved in, but I was going to talk to Jason. I was going to try to, like, use different names or say it was someone I knew, but I felt like that's a little bit deceitful. So overlook myself in this, and I think when you hear the story, you you will be able to do that. Probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, possibly. I enjoy to, I enjoy the outdoors. I enjoy to hunt. And I did that a lot. And in fact, God, through that time back then, God was revealing to me that it was, it was an idol in my life. I spent more time thinking and wanting to do that than being with other people and being with God and reading and learning more of him. So I went on this trip out of state um deer hunting which is kind of a solo operation and but there was a few other individuals staying where I was at. So I met this guy um we bunked in the same room. We kind of hit it off just as a normal like back and forth friendship relationship, nothing deep, nothing really talked about. You know, we only saw each other right before time to go to bed, so didn't really know much about me, and so we went our separate ways after that time was over, and a few months later, I got a text, and it was a picture It was a picture of a woman with nothing on. Something that our flesh might desire to see, but we know that's the wrong thing. So he sends this. I was like, wow, how do I respond? I showed it to Carla. Because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to just cut him off and be a goody two shoes and just say, either not respond at all or say, hey, never send me something like this again and just leave it at that. So I called my pastor at the time, which was over at Greenville, and I was like, Danny, I said, what do I do? And he said, it's simple, which I should have known, but he said, just tell him that you can't have that in your life because you honor and respect your relationship with your wife so much. That to have something in there like that tears that relationship down. And not only that, you go further and that tears apart your relationship with God. So I called him. I said, hey, man, I said, don't do that. I said, for the protection of my marriage and my relationship with my God, I want to see it. My flesh wants to see that, but I know I can't. And I know I shouldn't, so please don't do that. I thought it would either go on in two ways. Either he would be done or not. Well, due to godly advice and prayer, that relationship has flourished. I can't say that he's a believer yet. But we've had so many. He he learned really quick that, uh, that there was a seriousness of the God that was served. And he respected that and he wanted that. And so I see him a lot. I talk to him a lot and it's great. God also revealed through that hit back to some of this that we talked about, our sports hobbies, different things. There's times where that might be idolatry, which was where I was at, and God started revealing to me that, Ryan, this is interest that you have, and you can either make it an idol, or you can glorify me through it by including others and building relationships and sharing him. So I just share that story because I think the time and the culture we live in the uh, the way we respond to unbelievers is so crucial in sharing god and so i want to encourage you i also want to encourage you that don't just ask your pastor or an elder that's great but i want to say there's so many godly men and women here so don't There's times where you may go to the pastor and elder, but the blessing is twofold when you have these conversations. And so spread it out, spread it amongst the whole body of believers here. Lean on each other and share and be transparent on how we deal with our daily lives. So we're going to go to the next section of eternal hope that we have um, in verses seven through 11. And Peter previously in describing the things that were described were like the fleshly, self-serving love, basically all those items that he listed out as ways that is, it's a self-serving love. And now he dives into the love that we are called to, and that is a serving love. It's a sacrificial love. Self is not involved in the love that we are going to talk about in this next section. And it's a stark contrast, which should not be a surprise our eternal hope in him enables us to live in such a way as we're called to live so in verse 7 it goes on peter says to the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers everything necessary for the end has happened the messiah jesus christ has came he lived he died was resurrected, he's ascended back to the Father, and he now reigns over the universe and is ready to judge all. So that's the end is at hand because in eternity, when we look at the eternal hope, just had this conversation just a few minutes ago with eternity in mind that whether Christ's return is this afternoon or whether it's another 2,000 years, it's still, it's still nothing. It's still, the end, end days, and in eternity perspective, it's, it's a flash. So, how do we respond, to, that part of the verse where the end is at hand? When I want to ask the question: Is there, is there panic or fear, or isolation or pleasure seeking? I seen this quote the other week and it said, Imagine if our Christian view of the end times was centered on preparing for Christ rather than an Antichrist. And it's similar to what you may have heard like to know a counterfeit, something counterfeit, you have to truly know the original. So let's center on preparing for Christ rather than an Antichrist. Centered, quote goes on, centered on the mark of the lamb rather than the beast. Centered on preparing for redeeming the earth rather than escaping it. And centered on hope rather than fear. Our prayers or conversation with God should be with a clear mindset. Self controlled, sober minded, Peter says. Not casual and meaningless, meaningless as if we're simply checking a box. So it goes on in verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. And an earnest love is an act of love. It's not a passive love. So earnestly means it's going to take some work. It's not going to be necessarily easy. It's much more than words. Just simply saying, oh, I love you and going on. In the second part of the verse where it says, since love covers a multitude of sins, we ask the question, does the second part mean that if we love each other, our sins are forgiven and covered? I want to say, yes and no yes because if we truly love each other we will forgive when sinned against because christ has forgiven us of much more so when we can't forgive others then really i question our belief of what we've been forgiven of so there's a relationship thing with christ there with ourselves. it's similar to the lord's prayer where he says forgive us our trespasses as, those for, and for, as we forgive those who trespass against us. So if we don't forgive each other, then uh, I question our belief of our forgiveness. I believe what Peter's referring to here is that when we earnestly love each other, we forgive them of the wrongs against us, and we don't hold bitterness over past sins. think that's the covering he's referring to is that we don't remember when someone repents and says hey sorry you know we we don't hold a grudge they're covered the sins are covered so let's remember that verse 9 show hospitality to one another without grumbling when peter wrote this there was it was a time where there was persecution Persecution was building for unbelievers. And so people may have been, well, not may have been, they were, they were being pushed out of their homes, pushed out of their towns they lived in. And they were, might have to, they might be passing through your area and you would have to put them up and feed them for, who knows, days, weeks, months, who knows. So the hospitality was real. It was an earnest hospitality. It's, we don't, we don't really fully understand what that's like. A lot of times, if we have family or friends even in for two or three days, we're ready for them to be out of our house. So I'm just saying there. I've I've grumbled, um, but the hospitality that he means is real. It's it's a godly hospitality. It's it's. um It's easier, I think, at times, for us when we think about hospitality and helping others. A lot of times, it's easier for us to give our money than our time. So we look and see, well, you know, how does somebody need help? And oh, you know, we're, a lot of times, our our time is really what we we latch onto that pretty good. I do. I like my time. So, I I think that it's it's our time and it's our service. So we just need to ask ourselves if, if we are serving sacrificially with a sacrificial love or a reluctant love. And are we checking a box with our hospitality? Like say, well, we need to be hospital, we need to, hospitable. We need to have people over. We need to do this or that. And we want to make sure it's not just checking a box, but that our hospitality involves truly loving each other and honoring each other and that we desire deeper relationships with others, that that's our end, reason, end goal. Oftentimes, relationships are viewed as a give-take relationship, like if uh, what do I have to offer in this relationship, and what do you have to offer back? And you find that a lot of times we set different individuals higher than others depending on what they have to offer and all these things, and I just want to ask us that we that we try to guard against that because we find in hospitality and relationships that people's true desire isn't just the talents or abilities, but they're, they people are drawn to someone that truly cares and loves and listens. So let's be a person, people that truly love each other love others we listen well um it's a quote i heard the other day it said seek first to understand before trying to be understood and that stuck in pretty good so we'll move on to verse 10 as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of god's varied grace James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We need to see that everything that is given is an opportunity to serve others, and literally meaning everything, everything we have. A steward is someone who is entrusted with another's property, And a good steward will enable the property to increase by using it in a way that the owner desires. So whether we're talking material things, whatever it may be, everything is a gift and grace of God. And to not use a gift for the intended purpose is not good stewardships. So we need to search our hearts. We need to Allow the deviations to be shown where we deviate. Chapter or verse, verse 11 goes on, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Like material possessions, the ability to speak and serve are gifts of his grace also. The ability to do these things should also be used to serve others. So it's not the self-serving that we saw in the previous part of the text, but this this is things that are used to serve for others' behalf. We serve others on God's behalf with strength that he provides for his glory and not ours. Serving often stretches us, but that's really what's good for us. And we, we need to remember that things that stretch are harder to break. Um, there's just, there's a lot of good analogies that don't want to go into, but I think you get the gist of where I'm going. When we speak words of encouragement, loving correction, we're delivering God's words with love for each other. So I just want to encourage us all, I think, um, Not a whole lot more needs to be said on that, but we just need to truly love each other like it first started to say. When we sacrifice our time and energy to meet the needs of others, God gives his strength. In our lives, time, our service, money, everything everything should be used for his purpose and his glory. Say, well, does this mean I can't enjoy life and I just want to question and say, well, enjoyment usually isn't what I think it is. There's a lot of times even before community group or something, I say, oh, I don't want to do this tonight. And then you realize after it's over that that's the best thing that could have happened. And so I just, we have to constantly remind ourselves of where we find enjoyment. Because everything, everywhere else we look for enjoyment, it's not fulfilling. And if our life and interests involve others, it is a perfect place for relationships to be made. So the last part of verse 11 reminds us of why all this is created. It's all created in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, dominion, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, just to recap real quick, um, always be reminded that suffering creates growth, but it only creates growth when our eyes are fixed on the goal. It's kind of like an athlete; um, they might train, they train hard, they stretch things. the The, the workout isn't fun. But if they keep their eye on the goal, that keeps them motivated. So we have to keep our eye on the goal, and that is the standard that we previously talked about. That's Christ. That's the eternal hope. We keep our eyes on the eternity and why He's created us and His will. And it gives us strength through the times of struggle, through the times of stretch. And then we can look at those times of stretch and those times of struggle when we keep our eyes on him, we can look at those times and we realize that really it's probably the best thing for us because without stretching, there's not growth. And so through this process, it's God's will and plan which brings glory to him in a deeper relationship with our creator. And so when I think that we, when we can see that suffering for his sake And that offering a sacrificial love to others, when we see that for what it really is, it makes life a lot easier when we know that that's the way He designed it. So I wanna pray to that end. Father God, thank you for this time together and that we could focus our eyes. Help us that we would focus on you, not on ourselves. And that through times of suffering, through times of stretching, through times of serving, through times of earnest love to one another, like we're called to, Father, that you would supply us with your strength and your grace, and that we can um, more fully align to your will each and every day, and that we would truly become the instruments that you have created us to be we love you and ask this in christ's name